This is Susan Trudy, and you are listening to Ecotopia on KZFR 90.1 in Chico. We are a weekly program exploring ecosystems, environmental, social, and technological. And tonight we are continuing our series of uh, radical change shows and the program tonight we'll be talking with dr claire brown she's a professor of economics and director of the center for work technology and society at the university of california in berkeley she's part of our series on radical change and she's an advocate of a buddhist economy a holistic economic approach where the economy delivers a high quality of life in a sustainable world buddhist economics integrate sustainability equity and compassion and she is the author of buddhist economics an enlightened approach to the dismal science and that was published in 2017 lest you think that claire brown is some loosey-goosey hippie-dippy liberal we want to give you a fulsome account of her work as an economist Dr. Claire Brown is a professor of economics and director of the Center for Work, Technology, and Society at the University of California, Berkeley. She is a past director of the Institute of Institutional Relations at UC Berkeley. She has published research on many aspects of how economies function, including high-tech industries, development engineering, the standard of living, wage determination, poverty, and unemployment. Her books include American Standards of Living, 1919 to 1988, and Tips and Change, How Crises crisis reshapes the semiconductor industry. Claire's contributions to the field of labor economics were recognized by the Labor and Employment Relations Association, who awarded her their Lifetime Achievement Award in 2010. Claire's Economic Approach and Life as an Economist is published in Eminent Economist 2, Their Life their life and work philosophies and that's by cambridge welcome claire brown oh i'm so happy to join you susan on ecotopia so thanks for inviting me yes it's it's great to have you here i've been looking forward to this claire when we first correspondent corresponded you said you'd like to start um about by talking about what makes life meaningful and then move in to a discussion of economics and specifically buddhist economics but I'd like to start with a big overarching question that will touch on everything. Um, then we'll come back to talk about what makes life meaningful. And I'm sure we're going to be talking about that as you answer this question. You're a feminist, a Buddhist, a wife, a mother, a professor, a mentor, an author, a philosopher, an economist. How has that complex identity shaped the way you've developed your economic theory in life's work? That's a really wonderful way to start. Um, so thank you for thinking, having me think about sort of where did I come and how did I get here? Because I've been really fortunate to have many wonderful, amazing people mentor and teach me. And certainly they've helped shape my identity and worldview, which I apply in my economics. But one person stands out. And I hold my memories of her in my heart because she really taught me about racism. Mm. 
mm-hmm. in a really loving way. And this was my black nanny, Nazarene, who cared for me from the day I was born until I was in the fourth grade. She was like a mom to me. And this was in Tampa, Florida, when mm-hmm. I lived in a totally segregated society. And it was totally dominated by whites with blacks put in a really inferior place. And as they helped us, they served us. But I was really lucky because here I was this little kid growing up. And Nazarene and I had a really close relationship. And she taught me about the things that I looked around and I kept being so inquisitive about Nazarene, Nazarene, I just saw the most amazing movie, Alice in Wonderland, in 1951. Mm. You have to go see it. And she explained to me why she couldn't go see it, because she wasn't allowed in a theater I went to. It was whites only, and the black theater didn't get any good movies. Uh. And then she explained to me about the white, the, how, why we had to drink out of different water fountains at the grocery store white and black and then she explained to me why i'd ask her nazarene why do you always get on and ride in the back of the bus and she would explain to me that's where they made her ride and even as a little kid i could see that this was crazy and outrageous here was this woman who was the center of my life and she wasn't being treated well because it was very clear she would explain to me the impact it had on her life to be black and to be treated as an inferior person and that i think is why i became an economist i really wanted to help make the world a better place and in my dissertation i focused on discrimination in the labor market Mm. um, both for women but also for blacks and so i'm really grateful because of nazarene who got me off in a way that made me look at the world critically and ask why are certain people treated the way they are by the color of their skin or by the way they speak or by their religion or whatever and that's one of the things that drove me to be an economist that cared about discrimination and racism i mean it's just so odd that you were given into the care of a person who was considered inferior and this person gave you the love and support that you really needed as a small child but they're considered in i I, i've never been able to get over that irony i just think it's so bizarre yes it, it, it really is but then all of racism and racial injustice makes no sense it's crazy so let's go back to where we were going to start at one point when we were conversing. What does make life meaningful? And why do you think there's so much disagreement about what makes life meaningful? Well, there's certainly disagreement in the United States now. I'm not so sure there is in other parts of the world, but people in the U.S. are so polarized um, based upon their there are different values and worldview, and it's highly unfortunate um, that we're so polarized even about what makes life meaningful. So there's one group who's just completely bought into the free market view of life. It's egotistical. Freedom for individuals is most important for them to be able to do what they please, and their meaningful life is based upon money getting more money, having more status consumption, having more power over people and nature. 
the other group of which I'm a part and you're a part, we understand the interdependence of people with each other and with nature. And so that means we care about people as well as we care for ourselves. So, but we care about people and ourselves. And a meaningful life for us, and you're hopefully most of your listeners, I hope, and thanks to them for joining us. I'm guessing that this is true. It really revolves around relationships and helping other people, contributing to the community, caring for nature. Basically, a meaningful life for us is enjoying life while we live in harmony with each other and the planet. Those are two really different ways of thinking about life and what what makes it meaningful. You said that this is true particularly in the United States, and I know you've done a lot of work internationally. How would you compare various places that you've observed and studied, um, regions and countries, and how would you compare the U.S.'s notion of what is meaningful to what you've seen in other places? Right. Well, that's that's an interesting question. I don't want to respond with too broad a brush because, mm-hmm. of course, yeah. <laughs> cultures vary around the world, and there's a lot of nuance even in a region or one country. But you do see some variation that, you know, has patterns. And so, for example, when you go to Asia, they definitely approach life in a more spiritual way and they really do want to care for the human spirit they realize their independence with others and that requires caring for others and then you go to western europe and they really understand the importance and value of social cohesion and having a society that takes care of everyone and people are truly seen as equal and these so these are two ways that culture helps people to think about what life, what makes life meaningful. I haven't been to any country that puts so much value on so-called personal freedom. Each person gets to do whatever they want to do and doesn't get, they won't have to be told by anyone what to do. Um, where the free market is seen as, you know, the way to go with get rid of government. I don't see that in any other country. You can see some variations of it, but it's really powerful and observed in the U.S. by many people. And the mask situation in the past few weeks has really um, made that clear how people say, I'm, I'm free to do whatever I want. And so there is no attention to the needs of others. I, I, I was kind of rude. When I walked into a bank the other day and the clerks weren't wearing masks and I said, you know, if I got, if I got COVID, I could die. And they kind of, you know, looked away from me. Um, but, but really no concern about the older people that are around them, the unhealthier people that are around them. There was a very old man and he and I were the only two in the place who had masks. And I was thinking the rest of you, are not attending to anything but your own, I I get to do what I want to do. Oh, and the bank should have required it. You know, I think I'm going to call them and say... Yeah, because it's up to them to tell their employees, you have to wear masks for the health of our clients and customers, please. Yeah. But, you know, also I'll get emails 
from my European friends or Asian friends, and they're all absolutely unbelieving that Americans won't wear masks. Okay. They're, they're, they're used to it. They're happy to. They couldn't imagine not doing it. And so the rest of the world is is really finding the U.S. hard to understand. And right now, as you know, the U.S. has the most rampant COVID yes. contagion and yes. cases. And it's, it's like we're leading the world in how not to handle the COVID contagion. It's a problem. It's a big national problem right now. And it gets to that issue of... Um, social cohesion and care for others. Um, yes. What? How? How have we gotten here? Was the United States? I won't ask. Was the United States always like this? But um, how? What have been some of the socio-political factors that have influenced our views and what of what makes life meaningful, especially since the eighties and the Reagan era? Ah, uh, yes, Reagan. Reagan's presidency was a big turning point for the United States. And Margaret Thatcher in the UK at the same time, it was a big turning point for them Mm -hmm. in terms of saying, you know what, we don't need so much government. We, We want to rethink the role of government. And so Reagan, I remember this so well because it actually was when um, I was writing my American Standards of Living book. And I was so surprised to hear Reagan say, listen, we have a great social safety net that takes care of all the people in need, so we don't have to worry about that. We really don't. It's okay for us to not worry about the income distribution because people in need or vulnerable people, they'll have a safety net. So now we can actually all just get as much income as we can, not worry about inequality, and we're going to really lower taxes, but that really meant we had a very progressive tax system when Reagan came Mm. in. It had high tax rates at the top of like 65, 70%. And he said, we're going to really get rid of our progressive tax system because everybody should get to be in charge of how they spend their own money. (laughs) And we don't have to worry about people in poverty remember we have a safety net which was not true Mm -mm. um and so but people believed it he was a very convincing and likable president um and so he convinced the u.s that everybody you can now focus on your own income make as much money as you can make as much wealth as you can it's all okay to have status consumption and show off who you are and sort of how much money you make it totally changed the culture and so once we did that, then GDP or national income became the national goal. Mm-hmm. And it didn't matter how it was distributed. And that was a huge turning point for the way the U.S. thought in terms of culture and inequality. Poverty rates went up. Inequality has skyrocketed for four generations after that. Our social programs have really been decimated. The social safety net, as we found out with the COVID crisis, doesn't really exist. We had to recreate it. Um, And so it started with Reagan, but it continued through. It wasn't all Reagan's fault by any means. It's like it became the national culture. Oh, make all the money you can. Get all the wealth you can. Unfortunately, it really... 
Um, this focus on the free market and materialistic economy had people chasing after more and more income. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, when there's a lot of inequality, there's what economists call the relative income effect, which means everybody sort of judges their income by what it is relative to the people above them. Mm-hmm. And so people started feeling much worse off as they saw the people living luxurious lives at the top of the income distribution. And so even even if their income didn't go down, their relative income fell with inequality. Yes. And they started feeling worse off. And so then they, they were less satisfied with their lives and their incomes. So then they started chasing after more and more income and consumption, thinking that this was the way to be happy. But you and I know that's not true. Mm-hmm. So we ended up chasing after income and goods and feeling worse off. And that's pretty much where we end up today. I, I have a Buddhist teacher who talks about about grasping um, and how that grasping can become an, an, an endless cycle. If I just had... If I just had an electric car, then I'd be happy. Or if I just could get a job at a slightly bigger department store, then I'd be happy. Or if I just had a slightly better neighborhood, I'd be happy. Um, Then I'd be happy when we get this next thing means that then there's another thing that we have to wait for that's going to make us happy and it just keeps going on and on and on how do we get off this cycle of desire and discontent oh you just put it so well susan that's exactly (laughs) how the dalai lama teaches us it says you know we're just going to keep chasing after the next thing and when you think a specific good or a specific outcome is going to make you happy, then actually you're going to always be suffering because there's never a way to end the list. The list is endless. Right. And how do we stop? Well, that's actually the question that pushed me to write my book, Buddhist Economics. And so that leads me to ask having, I just hope all your listeners will take some time during this period of social isolation to ask what makes my life meaningful because once we have the time to think that then that allows us to hop off the treadmill and think what does make my life meaningful oh did the did a new car no Mm. (laughs) Uh, did adding on to my house painting my house a retirement plan did that make me happy well yeah it might have made me happy for a day or two Mm -hmm. but then i just reverted back to my old grasping or longing for more things or another thing to make life more exciting so once we start thinking about what really makes my life meaningful when, when you ask people what makes their life meaningful, they never talk about consumption. They talk, mm. again, about family, about relationships, about something they did that was really a great experience with other people or their families. They talk about doing something that felt rewarding when they helped someone or when they made a contribution to an event in their community or their schools. Um, they talk about that. Oh, when I helped the PTA put on this event and we raised money, I felt so good about that. 
And so basically, when we sit back and ask, we don't come up with chasing after more income and consumption. We actually end up talking about the people we care about, the events we have in our lives, the way we help others. Then you come back and say, oh, well, just a minute. Now that I'm really thinking about how I want to live, what do I want to do post-COVID? Because this crisis is allowing us to rethink how we're living and is requiring our society to rethink how we're going to live as a society. And so we really do want to think about socially also what do we need for us to all be able to hop off the treadmill and live a more meaningful life. And so we really do need to have an economy that lets everyone live comfortably and that we need to have Everyone needs some health care, a, a true social safety net during hard times. We need the opportunity to develop our full potential. We want our kids to develop their full potential. And we want to have ways that we can care for other people, and we certainly want to help care for the planet and enjoy nature. Mm-hmm. So one of the things I do, and to do that means we're all going to have to work together to make that happen. So one of the things I do to make my life have meaning is I work with my local 350 group on California legislation that develops climate policies to stop carbon emissions. Because we want California to show the rest of the world how to transition to mm-hmm. a clean energy, modern economy. We know how to stop greenhouse gas emissions. We know how to heal the, the planetary ecosystems. This climate scientists have taught us all of that. We just have to do it. And so this political work really, with others, gives a lot of meaning to my life. Mm-hmm. And I think it's one way that all of us will find meaning in our lives, both working personally, but with others. This is Ecotopia on KCFR, and I'm talking with Claire Brown. She's a professor of economics at UC Berkeley and author of Buddhist Economics, an Enlightened Approach to the Dismal Science. Why did you decide to entitle your book? I'm interested both in, in the Buddhist economics part and in, in the dismal science part. Oh, well, it's sort of a sad story, I think, Susan. Um, Buddhist economics was the name of my undergraduate seminar that I started teaching at Berkeley in spring 2013, eight years ago now. Um, I've taught it eight times. As a practicing Buddhist, I wanted to develop an economic framework that was based on three assumptions that every Buddhist would think, of course, interdependence of people with each other and the planet, that people are altruistic and compassionate, and that we care for the human spirit as well as the body and mind. Um, This seminar became the basis for my book, and Bloomsbury Press, the publisher, thought that the name Buddhist Economics, an Enlightened Approach to the Dismal Science, was a great name. So they named it that. (laughs) And it sort of reflected the culture at the time. You remember Obama was president, and... And people really were feeling much more mm-hmm. aware of how we were treating each other. And um, these people were much much less aggressive and much kinder in those days, if mm-hmm. you can think back to then. Uh, I know in my classes I saw that and felt that, as well as in my climate work. Well, 
unfortunately, the timing was terrible for when my book mm. was going to come out. They thought my book would come out after Hillary Clinton was mm-hmm. made the first woman president. And that people would really be ready for this kind of thinking. Alas, Trump was elected. He took office a month before the release of my book. Everything in the country had changed. Um, Buddhist economics turned out to be an awful name. It turned the press off. They'd say, I don't cover religion. (gasps) It also turned off a lot of readers. They said, oh, I'm not religious. Well, actually, as a Buddhist, I actually don't think of myself as religious Mm -mm. either. I think of it more as philosophical approach to an ethical way of living. Um, Yes. Anyway, I really wish we had chosen a different release date. And also a different title. Everybody everybody thinks economics is the dismal science. That was no problem. <laughs> I mean, you know, I just laugh when I'm going to talk to people about economics. I say, I'm an economist. I know, I know. Don't leave quite yet. Just give me a chance. <laughs> um, because economics actually it does have a lot to say about how the world works and how we can make it work better. Um But it is the dismal science in that the way it got that name is that it was it was a big joke that whenever the economy is doing well and heating up is when the Federal Reserve, the bankers come in and remove the punch bowl. They take away the punch bowl parties over. And so that's how it got this idea that it was a dismal science. It was always no fun um, for anybody except economists. What? is Buddhist economics and how does it differ? You've given us a little bit about the philosophical um, uh, points that underlie it. How does it differ from traditional neoliberal economics? So that's at the heart of the question of why did I do Buddhist economics? (laughs) So I was teaching Econ 1 and Econ 1 at every school we teach this free market model mainly because it's real simple to teach and it's traditionally what we teach. And so we say, oh, okay, everybody's selfish. Everybody wants to maximize their own mm-hmm. income. Companies want to just maximize profit. That's all they do. If you're listening to this recording of Ecotopia, we had a few technical problems, some telephone problems, and so we fix those and if you stick with us you will hear the end of a very good interview what is buddhist economics and how does it differ you've given us a little bit about the philosophical um uh, points that underlie it how does it differ from traditional neoliberal economics So that's at the heart of the question of why did I do Buddhist economics? (laughs) So I was teaching Econ 1, and Econ 1 at every school, we teach this free market model mainly because it's real simple to teach, and it's traditionally what we teach. And so we say, oh, okay, everybody's selfish. Everybody wants to maximize their Mm -hmm. own income. Companies want to just maximize profit. That's all they do. And don't worry, we don't have to worry about income distribution because all we have to do is worry about average income. It's okay. Um, The market will take care of everything. And so market has this magical quality of somehow making everything work out that 
and we're assuming everybody has the same opportunities in the in the society that there's no discrimination everybody has perfect information there's no problem with some people having a lot more information than others we assume that there's actually no no what we call externalities or social cost hey if we put out a lot of carbon emissions don't worry it's okay we don't have to pay for it so so people in the economy can dominate nature and not mm-hmm. worry about using nature as if it's freely available to us without any consequences well that's the free market model and and in that model, anything by the government is only going to make interference with the market working its magic. But, of course, the market doesn't work its magic. Mm-hmm. So we end up with an alternative, whereas if you go in and assume what I just mentioned Buddhists would naturally assume, interdependence of people and the planet, that people are altruistic and not just selfish, and that the human spirit is an important part of who we are, and that, in fact, we are, our interdependence with the Earth means it does matter what we do to the planetary systems. Mm-hmm. And that people care a lot more, when you talk about the human spirit, we care a lot more about just chasing more money and goods. So the minute you make those assumptions, you've turned the neoclassical free market model totally on its head. Mm-hmm. And you get completely you're no longer maximizing average national income. You're maximizing the well-being of all people and caring for the planet. And you're offering people and supporting a life where consumption is fine as long as everybody has it. But happiness doesn't come more and more and more. It's not always better for consumption. That people really do care about their relationships and their and their role in the community and sort of how they can give back to the earth in a way that is meaningful to them. You end up with two diametrically opposed worldviews and the models, the economic models or systems that go with it. Are there ways that... Did that answer your question? Yeah, it does. I'm wondering if you see places in our culture where Buddhist economics are being enacted or are we on the complete opposite side of that is or in other cultures where do you see this way of thinking about things actually being that enacted is, that's such a great question so susan when i would go about the economics i kept getting the question of this just sounds like a pipe dream Mm-hmm. I don't think you can have a Buddhist economy or Buddhist-like economy anywhere. Like, where do you have a Buddhist kind of economy? I thought, you ought to be able to answer that specific data. So I went back and together a student research team at Berkeley. And for the last two years, my research team and I have developed what I call a Sustainable Shared Prosperity Policy Index. It's about policies that countries have because actually we know the policies to reduce inequality and share prosperity. We know the climate scientists have given us all the policies to create a clean energy only economy. And we know how to have regenerative agriculture and not industrial agriculture with all of its methane problems. 
um, and the way it's degrading the soil and so forth. We know how to reduce global suffering. The UN has shown that with their stable development goals. And great job in helping to reduce global poverty and starvation to educate women and girls. The COVID crisis is interfering with some of that. But we know how to do these things. We have policies. So my research group went and collected data on policies in 50 countries, mostly European US, OECD. Um, and so we have this SFDI, Sustainable Shared Mustard Policy. So we know the countries actually have a food stock economy. And no, no one calls it that. People call it social democracy. So we have Sweden, Denmark, Finland, Claire. France, Austria, Here, Germany, Norway. Those all rank really well on the SSPI, okay. along with Australia and Canada. Guess where the U.S. is? Yeah, not good. <laughs> yeah, we're 36 out of 50 countries. It's pretty big. So you, you that culturally we're, we're way behind these other countries in the kind of economy we've we've created and our policies though and this is the one thing that troubles me a lot is every single country needs to do better with their policy around carbon emissions around waste management there's a lot of wasteful consumption um, around agricultural care of the soil so every country needs to do better sustainability and protecting the Earth ecosystem. Even though these countries, I think they're all doing programs and restructuring markets and really helping the, the quality of life in terms of human well-being. Uh, um, you've been breaking up for a couple seconds here. We were in the middle of talking about the environmental disasters uh, of not having a caring economy, a Buddhist economy that cares for the earth. And um, uh, one of the things I want you to repeat is what the, when you and your research assistants looked at countries around the world, uh, you were looking at, what was the acronym for what you called uh, a good, a caring economy? I called it the Sustainable Shared Prosperity Policy Index. Okay. So it's the policies that countries have, not not the outcomes, but just their policies um, that would create a sustainable economy that has equity and cares for people and gives and helps support meaningful lives for everyone. And that's called, I call that the SSPI. SSPI. And um, could you repeat where the United States <laughs> fell again, even though it's kind of horrible? Okay. To well, I appreciate you, the patience and of your listeners, so thank you. Yeah, so Sweden, Denmark, Finland were at the top. And along with, with France and Germany did quite well. The U.S. ranked 36 out of 50 countries. And... What are the most kind of glaring areas where the United States is failing? Well, to be 36. Pretty much you, everything. <laughs> yeah, you, you, have, you could do better across the board. Absolutely. Um, and so I can't just say, oh, if the U.S. just did this or this mm -hmm. or this, they would, they basically need to do a lot better in providing 
government programs that has a great strong social safety net they really do need to do a whole lot better on carbon emissions and wasteful consumption and they definitely need to do better on their agricultural policies that are degrading the water supplies and the soil and so we have a lot of ways that we can do much better which is actually that's the good news the united states we, we know the policies and together as citizens we can really come together to push for the changes that we know we need to make as a country so um, can we for sustainability and for equity can, can we push um companies and uh corporations and as well as the government should citizens be um lobbying business as well as government yes there are two ways that we should push our companies and one is we should demand green products companies listen to what their customers want we do know that Mm -hmm. so when you demand green products or when you say i don't want to buy this it's got toxins in it it's got things in it that aren't good for me or for the earth companies listen to that and the other one's a little bit harder because all of us can protest and get together customers and their organizations that lead the way on that the other one though i find a little bit harder to do but if you team up with friends at work you should also start talking to bosses about you know we really need paid family leave we really need paid vacation days we all need to be able to take time off from work when we need to to care for our families but we can't afford to unless we get some paid time off and so this is standard policy in other countries u.s is the only country that doesn't have paid child care time off uh, when you have a baby we're the only country without everyone getting maternity leave in quite a few months of it so there are lots of ways that we can ask for it but often it's somewhat easier to go to the government federal government and say you know we ought to mandate paid time off we should mandate maternity leave we should have a minimum amount that every company has to have because that's what other countries do and once you mandate it then of course the companies are all going to do it they could do it now but they don't because they don't have to and so there are certain ways that we can get together and make the demands of companies because they could do a whole lot better than they are to help us all live more balanced lives and lives that are easier for us to care for our families and for our communities and each other and we also need to enjoy life hey life's here to enjoy we aren't working to just work (laughs) we really do want to enjoy life what are the steps to get us from where we are now to there because i can't see that anybody would not if they understood this would not see this as the goal Maybe very rich people who don't want to give up any of their money or something. But how do we, what can we do to move forward? Well, I think actually the COVID-19 crisis is giving, is opening the wedge for us. I already see it happening. People are now coming together and saying, oh my gosh, we need paid sick leave. Yeah. We we absolutely need paid sick leave. We actually need to figure out how to 
have better public health care. We need to have better health insurance for everyone um, because 5 million people just lost their health insurance when they lost their jobs. So we know that this is a time of crisis. And one of the bright sides of crisis is that it's it's a time when we're coming back, we're having economic recovery. It's a time to say, hey, we need a green economic recovery. It's also a time to say it's time to look at the social safety net again Mm -hmm. and make sure that it functions when people are in need and we need it. It's a time that we're all stuck and we're all going to become more engaged, I think, in what's happening in the government. And we're all going to hopefully start making demands um, with our government. So this and companies, this is what we need. And this is what we know can be done. We know the policies. Let's do them. And we have a vision of the world we want. Mm -hmm. Together we can create it. Mm -hmm. All we need is the courage. Courage to work with others to demand the changes. We also need the courage to enjoy life Mm -hmm. during this period of crisis. Mm -hmm. How can people learn more about you and your work? And how can they come? become part of this progress toward a Buddhist economy? Oh, I would just love to have them go online. BuddhistEconomics.net That's my website. What is it? BuddhistEconomics.net, correct? Yes. Okay, good. BuddhistEconomics, one word, dot net. Okay. And you can learn a lot more about this. There's lots of information there with blogs and, hey, with podcasts and in interviews and um, and ideas about how you can move forward. So just remember that when you get in, find a group and get involved with creating the change, the vision you have of what's important to you, you only have to have one thing that you really would like to work on and to help change. Because mm. um, there's lots and lots of people out there and they all have synergy together. One of the things I love about my work with 350 is, hey, I know economics. I can bring in economics. Everybody has a skill and talent that they can contribute. And they just have to find a group that they like working with and then think, here's what I'd really like to work with. And here's here's how I'd like to add value to the world and help the world. And uh, they can do it that way, which is really, really helpful to the world but also to them. It's a true win-win. And so I think that's really important to think about it on a personal level, but then get engaged at a societal level because the, the world and the society need us all right now. Right. And we have a lot of organizations in Chico who are working on all of the things that you just talked about. Healthcare, uh, climate change. We have a great 350 group. So absolutely, we can do that. Thank you so much. Our guest has been Dr. Claire Brown. She's a professor of economics and director of the Center for Work, Technology, and Society at UC Berkeley. It's been such a pleasure to talk to you. I really appreciate your time. It was terrific. Thanks so much for having me on your show.